digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. My guest today on Digging in the Dirt is Arthur Davis, a director, researcher, and portable toilet coordinator, more on that later, at the Rich Earth Institute in Brattleboro, Vermont. The Rich Earth Institute engages in research, education, and technological innovation to advance the use of human waste as a resource. Arthur directs Rich Earth Institute's Urine Nutrient Reclamation Program, which is a community-scale urine recycling program. In his role, Arthur helps get urine from the point of collection through the treatment process and finally to farms to use as fertilizer. Their slogan is fertilizer from urine, clean rivers, sustainable farms. Welcome, Arthur. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. No problem at all. Uh, so tell us about Rich Earth. How did it come to fruition and what are you doing there? At so we've been around since 2012. This is our, just about our 10 year anniversary this year. So Abe Noe Hayes and Kim Nace, our co-founders, they got together and they kind of pooled their interests and their expertises. Abe was really interested in composting toilets, uh, and Kim was really interested in kind of getting into the sanitation sphere, the, and specifically the eco-sanitation sphere. And so the two of them got together and they looked at kind of what they could do as a project. And they kind of realized that urine specifically was a great entry point to start a project. And that's because urine actually has about 80% of the nitrogen that is in the wastewater stream and about two thirds of the phosphorus that's in the wastewater stream. So quite a bit more than the, than the feces side does in terms of nutrients. And then it also doesn't have the same kind of pathogen load in, and risk that feces does. And it's also only about 2% of the volume of the wastewater stream. So it's like vastly the majority of the nutrients and a very small part of the total volume of the wastewater stream. And so it seemed like a great entry point into trying to divert nutrients out of the wastewater stream and use them in a more useful place. Mm -hmm. so why do we wanna do that is, is kind of the next reason to think about that. And that's because we want to um, take those nutrients out of waterways and put them into a place where we where we maybe will find them more useful, like agriculture. Right. So I saw a video of yours that explains the waste urine, what, what, what happens now naturally with our, the system of waste management that we have right now. But sure. and you're changing that. So could you explain why what happens up in Vermont affects Connecticut and Long Island down here? Yeah, totally. So, you know, when we, you know, up here everywhere in the Connecticut River watershed or other watersheds that flow to downstream to say the Long Island Sound, as an example, because uh, that's where, you know, we are in the Connecticut River watershed, all the nitrogen that is in wastewater up here, it goes into the Connecticut River and it flows downstream through the various dams and, and keeps going downriver until it gets to the Long Island Sound. And once it gets to the sound, that nitrogen is the fuel that helps produce algae blooms. And, you know, I know that Long Island Sound has been a location that has had a lot of trouble with, with algae blooms in the past. And so one kind of quick tidbit, there's an organization called the Long Island Sound Futures Fund, kind of a, a pot of money through Environmental Protection Agency. And they, they funded us in a bunch of our work 
And we were really impressed that, you know, folks down at the far reaches of the, of the bottom of the watershed were really thinking further up the watershed in, in terms of um, how to solve some of these problems. Not always in our, in our backyard. Sure. Uh, but maybe maybe we have to look downstream a little bit. Yeah, we have saved the sound down here, one of our partners, and we uh, are always interested in what's going on and going into the Long Island Sound. So why go after human urine as a source? Isn't there enough fertilizer from other sources? Or is this mainly driven by the fact that, the, like you said, this, this rich nitrogen-based, phosphate-based byproduct of human waste is going into the water system? Is that the main reason? Or is it also because or is it equal to providing fertilizer from that to farmers and gardeners? Yeah, I mean, I, I really think it's, I think it's both. And I think that one of the, one of the beautiful things about, about this topic and this kind of what, what we're doing is that uh, people can get on board. There's a lot of entry points for people to get excited about it. You know, whether you're a, a farmer and you and you're, you know, really thinking about fertilizer production side, or if you're say a, you know, environmental, you know, you're working on environmental pollution, nutrient pollution, you, or you care about water quality. Maybe you go to the beach in Long Island and you, you want the water down there to be, to be healthy. There's a lot of reasons to kind of get into it. Another, another one potentially is, is water savings. You know, in the Northeast, we're a lot less water stressed than other parts of the world. But, you know, doing this has the potential to use a lot less water for flushing our urine down the toilet. Right. And the West uh, is really stressed with that stuff. And I'm, I always said, when are they going to do uh, different kinds of toilets for the West? Because they're running out of water. And, and your exactly. fact on your website, you say that 1.2 trillion gallons of drinkable water is flushed away just to flush away our human waste. Yeah. And I think about that a lot, especially as, you know, they're talking out in, in, uh, in the Colorado River Basin about really, really uh, stringent water regulations that are, that are coming down the pike quite soon, even this year. And it feels like, you know, this, this could be part, part of that uh, equation for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but so I think to, you know, to answer your question, the why I think is kind of, I think of it as kind of a three-legged stool of, of all those things, you know, the fertilizer production, the environmental pollution reduction, and then also the water conservation. And I think from work that we've done, it definitely seems like the nutrient pollution issue is maybe the most relevant for kind of garnering a lot of action in the, in the short term, especially as uh, some more stringent regulations are, are coming for, for water quality. But I really think moving forward, all three of these really have the potential to get people excited to, to better utilize the, the resources that we are all producing every day. Mm -hmm. so, so how large of a collection uh, are you currently doing in, in the uh, Brattleboro area? Yeah, so in the Brattleboro area, we're right now we are averaging collecting about twelve thousand gallons of urine a year. So you know about about a thousand gallons a month, which in some ways feels like a lot, and in some ways feels very small. You know we have about two hundred or so people who are in an ongoing way donating their urine to our program. That is done in a variety of ways. When we first started, it was primarily you know people bringing their urine to a drop-off station. And uh, we, we still do that. Um, and a lot of people participate that way. It's a great way for people to first get involved because it's really low cost of, of entry. But more and more, we are also working on installations at people's homes and businesses and other locations where there are toilets 
to have permanently plumbed fixtures that go to a tank and then we can go around and and pump out those tanks mm-hmm. and so you know the between those two kind of methods of uh, participation we are you know collecting about about a thousand gallons a month or so so no matter which way you get it to your facility what happens then what did you process it is there something that goes on that uh you know, I'm thinking, you know, how do you know about somebody's drug use in the urine or there's a maybe disease or something like that? What's what's the, the deal with, uh, I, I see you refer to it as pasteurizing the urine. So, yeah. yeah. So, so the, the only, the only processing that we do at the moment in, in a kind of an ongoing way is, is the pasteurization process, which like, like any pasteurization process, whether it's, you know, milk or orange juice or, you know, a, a variety of other other liquids that are pasteurized that we use. It's a time and temperature process. So we get the urine to about 80 degrees Celsius, and we hold it there for about 90 seconds. And so we have a, a machine that, that does that. And that's the standard for treating sewage sludge. And so, you know, obviously urine is, is a very distinct thing from stu- sewage sludge, but that is a, that is a, kind of a, a recognized treatment level. And so that for our permit uh, with the Vermont Department of Environmental Conservation, that is the standard that they want us to treat it to because they don't want us to assume that there's no kind of fecal contamination. So we treat it to that standard. And then after that, there are no restrictions for us in terms of how we can use it or, right. or where we can use it. Huh. Um, so there, there's, so no, there's no checking for adulteration from pharmaceuticals or stuff like that? That's correct. At the moment, uh, we have done quite a bit of research looking at that exact question, and it's something that comes up quite a lot. People are often curious about it, and we did a number of years of field trials in partnership with the University of Michigan uh, out in Ann Arbor and also the University at Buffalo in Buffalo, New York. And what we did was we were growing lettuce and carrots in a field plot right here in southern Vermont. And we were looking at, at pharmaceutical, the, the kind of the fate of pharmaceuticals that were in the urine, where did they go and what happened to them when we used this, when we used urine as a, as a fertilizer to fertilize these crops. And kind of the questions were like, you know, what are we, are we, is it going into the water? Is it leaching out in the water? Is it staying in the soil? Is it going into the plant tissue? You know, one question is, are they getting, getting broken down? Mm-hmm. Um, and, did, you, did you find uh, anything out about that? Yeah, so we there, we're actually still in the process of, of of writing up that that research. But the the kind of the the main takeaways were that in many cases we can detect some pharmaceuticals, but they're at such dilute concentrations that we don't feel that it it is of the utmost importance to, right. to, to take them out at this point. Um, as a couple examples, we calculated that if you ate a head of lettuce every day for 2,000 years of this lettuce that we grew, so that's a head of lettuce every day for 2,000 years, you would get caffeine was the, uh, was the far and away the most prevalent. I mean, obviously, lots of people intake caffeine, right? Right. Um, you know, probably most of us who are, who are uh, you know, who are listening to this, to this podcast, order of magnitude, the most concentrated substance we were looking at. And if you ate a head of lettuce every day for 2000 years, you would get the same amount of caffeine as in a small cup of coffee. Oh, so, that's interesting. 
So, and, and it was similar with uh, something like uh, over-the-counter med like acetaminophen or you know, kind of one of those headache medications or, th- or something like that, which are pretty commonly used, but you would, you would have to eat, I think it was like 150,000 pounds of carrots to get a single dose. So we were able to detect some amount, but it's so infinitesimally small that we, we don't feel like it's, it's really of the utmost importance at this point to Not be a big issue. dealing with that. So I, it's safe to assume that you know, this can't be a certified organic. Currently, that is correct. And we have gone down that path a little bit. And, you know, one thing that is interesting in the United States is that currently most organic farmers uh, would not feel comfortable using it if they're certified organic because it is not, it's, a, it's kind of a gray area in terms of how the organic rules would, would look at this. That's a, it's a kind of a whole nother topic that I'm not actually the one in the organization who has, who has been most involved in that. So I don't no, really no. Want to speak to it very much. No problem. I actually want to go back and say one more thing about the uh, pharmaceutical question, though. One other uh, important thing with the pharmaceuticals to be aware of is that right now, the, the, the status quo is that any pharmaceuticals that we are ingesting, we have to think about where they're going right now. And where they're going is into our aquatic ecosystems right? Right. Yep. Without, without really getting removed from wastewater treatment. Big problem. And so that... You know, I think we need to look at that in addition to thinking about where what's going to happen when we use it, maybe in a terrestrial environment. Right. One benefit of using it in a terrestrial environment is that um, soil microbes are uh, potentially a lot better of a kind of environment for breaking down at least some of these pharmaceutical substances than uh, waterways are. So that that's kind of another another avenue. And I think one thing that I think about a lot is you know, what is the status quo and what are we doing? Kind of, there's a lot of maybe issues that we don't think about, but uh, until we think about doing something different, making sure that we're kind of having an honest comparison about, about this, the status quo versus what we're kind of sure. working on. You know, now you've collected it all, you've, you've pasteurized it and it's ready for delivery. Do people come pick it up or do you deliver it or, and do you charge people for it? Yeah, so we currently are not charging people for it, uh, for the most part, although we've had a lot more demand uh, recently for it, which is a great thing. And so we actually have uh, started charging folks for, for it, especially for, for delivery to farther away places. Sure. Um, but right in our, in our kind of immediate area around here, it is mostly used by a number of farmers who use it on their hay fields. And we historically have not charged them for it. And, you know, we'll see, we'll see where that goes, I suppose, in the future. But we're not anticipating that anytime in the short run, charging farmers will be the way to make it pay for itself, right? Especially with com- trying to compete with, with other fertilizer prices. Mm-hmm. Certainly in the wake of current events, chemical fertilizer prices have really spiked. They've soared, uh, yeah. Which is... Um, been really interesting for us to watch here as we've been doing this work for 10 years and all of a sudden we've gotten a lot of interest recently uh, <laughs> in the last doubt. few months um, obviously uh, not uh, for you know it's it's really not great what's happening in in uh, Ukraine and, and Russia that's leading to, to this happening but uh, it definitely has had one effect is that it's gotten a lot more people 
thinking about fertilizer prices and fertilizer supply, and maybe there's another way to do this. And so I, I definitely feel like that has opened up this topic of conversation to a lot more people in the last couple of months. Hey, that's why um, I'm here with you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, so we, we typically deliver it to these farmers currently, and we have a tractor-driven tank, and we pump it into that tank, and the tractor pulls it along the field, and it basically has a boom out the back with poles that tractor drives at a certain pace, and uh, that allows the application rate to be correct. And, you know, pretty similar to many other types of farm equipment uh, application tech kind of technology. I'm talking um, to Arthur Davis of the Rich Earth Institute up in Brattleboro, Vermont. We're talking about human urine and turning it into fertilizer. Uh, Arthur, let's talk a little bit about home gardens. I saw a video that you did a do-it-yourself urine collector for home gardeners, and, and I thought that was really interesting. Is, is there something a home gardener or a small farmer has to keep in mind when collecting their own urine and using it as a fertilizer? Definitely. And I will plug our home use guide that we have. You can find it on our website, richearthinstitute.org. So it's a document that we, that we put together to kind of answer a lot of frequently asked questions that we have gotten over the years about what are best practices for using urine on the home scale, collecting it yourself, and then using it for your plants that, you, that you're growing. And there are, you know, a, a number of considerations from, you know, how much do I use and do I dilute it to how do I do this safely? We have some guidelines that are from the World Health Organization from a document that they published a number of years ago about this subject, which is great that that information is, is out there. So give us a couple of do's and don'ts about using human urine in the home garden. Uh, for instance, you know, how much, like you said, how much you use, and we would have to get into high detail because we're running out of time here, but how much do you use and do, do you dilute it? And, and is it, can you kill your plants if you do it wrong? Yeah, sure. So like any uh, fertilizer, if you apply too much fertilizer, then it will, it will burn your plants. So a big key is kind of knowing what your plants want for fertilizer and, and delivering the right, right amount. So urine is predominantly a nitrogen fertilizer. So nitrogen is the kind of the nutrient that you should kind of be looking at how much nitrogen do, do my plants want. My rule of thumb is that if you're uh, applying to, to wet ground or you're going to water it in right away afterwards, then you, know, you don't need to dilute, but certainly there's no harm in diluting. And often it can make, especially on the small scale, can make it a, you know, a, an easier process and, and potentially less stinky as well. Especially if you're, if you're applying to pretty dry ground, then uh, dilution is really great because then you're also not losing that nitrogen to the air through ammonia evaporation or volatilization. And in terms of some of the safety guidelines, the WHO recommends some things like doing some kind of sanitation step like pasteurization is, is not necessary if kind of you're gonna be, if your household is the household kind of providing the urine and your household is the ones uh, eating the food that you can kind of do that safely without, uh, without doing a pasteurization step. There are also ways to do low-tech sanitization of urine, and, and that uh, information is also in that document. Give them so, the website again where they can yeah, find that. Yeah, it's uh, richearthinstitute.org, and can look for the home use urine guide, or I can't remember the exact name of it, but you can, okay, should, very good. should be findable up there. 
So you also have uh, rent parties for festivals and stuff like that. You're the and you're the portable toilet coordinator. So tell us about that wrinkle of the uh, institute. Yeah, so uh, we we instituted this a number of years ago, and um, it's been a great outreach tool. We've retrofitted these portable toilets to be able to collect urine. Uh, they do accept all forms of waste, so they are full service portable toilet units. We rent them out to um, you know events, job sites, long term events, kind of long term sites like farmers markets, things like you know weddings, etc. All kinds of different events. And people have really, we've gotten really great feedback, both from the user sense and also that people are excited that their waste is going to, uh, to be reprocessed for kind of for a beneficial use. So that's been a really exciting thing. We process all the, all the urine that comes through these, through these units, and then we bring the solids to a uh, facility that does biosolids composting. Cool. So they are, uh, you know, a hundred percent, uh, recycled, uh, you know, re- recycled material. Very cool. So are you the only people doing this in the U.S. or are there other people? Because I know it's happening in other parts of the world. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's certainly many people working on this stuff all around the world. Switzerland, Sweden, South Africa, to name a few. Here in the U.S., there are a number of universities who have been working on urine and kind of urine reclamation technologies and research for quite a number of years. Um, There is also, just as an example, there's one company that we've been consulting with, and they're currently based out of Burlington, Vermont, and they are also looking to kind of be in the the portable toilet space. And they've done a lot of work on portable toilet design and are looking in the years to come, I think, really spread out region-wide and and potentially beyond. Uh, And they're called uh, Wasted, W-A-S-T-E-D asterisk clever name yeah and uh so anyway they're based up in burlington now and um and they're we've been consulting with them and i i think we're we're all very excited the other company that is actually a, a spin-off of the rich earth institute and we're called brightwater tools uh, so we're actually housed right here at the same facility in brattleboro and what we're doing we uh just got a grant from the national science foundation some kind of seed funding to start this company and we are working on building scale treatment technologies. So, you know, as I was talking about earlier, moving more towards permanently plumbed urine collection systems so that, you know, someone basically, if they need to go to the bathroom, they're just going to a toilet and they're using the toilet like they're used to. And then uh, the back end of the system is what's kind of doing that, um, okay. yeah. that reclamation. That and makes so sense. What we're working on is a system that could go in a, you know, a small, in a, you know, in an office building or a, you know, a small to moderate sized apartment building and be able to handle the waste that's being produced in that building. And so it would be pasteurizing all the urine and then also concentrating it because one of the things that is the most kind of energy intensive about this whole process is moving urine around because it's quite heavy. It has a lot of water in it. And so if we can take a lot of that water out, then we can transport it much more efficiently and, you know, take it from places that have lots of people, say, you know, city to a place that has lots of use for nutrients, such as, you know, an agricultural region. So that's one thing that we're really focused on here at the moment uh, in Brattleboro. 
So is the Institute long-term looking to see and help government municipalities get behind pasteurizing human urine for fertilizer? Definitely. I mean, I think we are we are really interested in working with government agencies, municipal governments, state governments, you know, other private sector folks as well. We I think we would we would really like to kind of help do what it takes to to move these things in the in the right direction. One area that I think definitely is in need of a lot of work right now is the regulatory environment because a lot of regulations have been written that don't really have this this type of use in mind, right? And so one thing that we've been spearheading as well is an initiative called the Gold Ribbon Commission, which is a group of folks from all across the country who have been working on creating some standards for use of urine as a fertilizer, kind of from point of collection onward, from the regulatory perspective, and thinking about how we can make smart regulations that allow people and our organizations, governments, et cetera, to be able to do this, this kind of work, you know, in a safe and, and also eff- effective way, where the regulatory process isn't, isn't a total bo- bottleneck. Sure. We've been speaking to Arthur Davis. He's a director of the Rich Earth Institute's Urine Nutrient Reclamation Program, which is a community-scale urine recycling program. It's very interesting. I'm always interested in in these wrinkles that uh, different organizations and people come up with to help take care of our planet. So it's a, it's good to see you guys working on stuff like this, and I, I, I applaud you for it. Um, well, thank you so much for for having having me, Kevin. What what well, really, what got me into this is finding a thing that was really solution-based in the environmental field and feeling like we're really working towards uh, something that allows us as humans to, to have a positive impact and use the things that we're making for, for good in the world and uh, as opposed to you know throwing them away and then having to deal with, with, deal with the consequences. Very good. Thank you, Arthur Davis of the Rich Earth Institute. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Digging in the dirt. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org.